friends. Um, I've not had the pleasure to meet you yet. My name is Sammy. I'm the campus minister. Uh, this semester, we've been going through the Ten Commandments, and tonight we're actually, we're, I'll be honest, um, because of the way COVID started things, we're kind of rushed toward the end, so we're, we're having to combine some of the commandments. I'm just being real straight up with you. Um, but tonight, it's been a fun challenge for me to think through how do I want to do this. And I actually think it's going to be a creative, I hope, I hope a creative um, experiment. Uh, tonight, what we're doing is we're looking at both commandments six and seven. And I do want to say, like, I feel like I say this every week. Um, sometimes these commandments, as we kind of apply them, think about them, can feel heavy. Uh, so please know uh, we're, that's not lost in me. It's not lost in us. And we'd love, in particular, questions you might have just to sit down, grab coffee, grab lunch, grab dinner, go for a walk. Yeah. All right. So tonight we're doing Commandments 6 and 7. And then actually, it's not in your handout, but I want to read how Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount um, says this to us. So let's start with the 6th and 7th commandment from Exodus 20. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, starting in verse 21. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Verse 27 in Matthew 5, you have, heard it, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Let me pray for us and then we'll kind of dive into what I want to talk about tonight. Let's pray first. Father, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we even thank you for your law. Lord, it is our blueprint for what a life both that is pleasing to you and a life that is good for us and for our neighbor, what it looks like. But Lord, it's not lost in us that if we're being honest, if we're being sober, we know that we fail to keep your law every day, multiple times a day. So Lord, I pray that as we look at these two commandments together tonight, as we look at what they reveal to us about your heart, and as we look at what they reveal to ourselves about our own hearts, I pray that you would not let it be lost on us how much we need Jesus. Lord, so much of what your law does is not just show us the way, but it does show us our need, our need for mercy our need for forgiveness, our need for you to be a God who is gracious to us. And we thank you that you have. We thank you for the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Father, you sent your son because we failed to keep this. And he didn't. And he didn't keep it to lord it over us. He kept it that we might be saved. And then he went to his own death in our place. Because that's how much you love us. And that's how much your son, Jesus, loves us. Lord, I pray that that would be clear to our hearts tonight. 
Lord, whether we are trusting in you, we've collapsed upon you and said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Or whether we still are fighting, we're still full of pride, we're still, at the end of the day, lost. Would you find us? Would you find us by your grace? Would you bring us home? Lord, that's what we want to be. And we pray that you would do what you alone can do in our midst tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Um, let me start with this. So I, I normally, I had a weird, I'm, I, you've, if you've been around, you know, movies are kind of my thing. Big fan, as are a lot of you. And normally, I'm a big Oscars guy. And for whatever reason this year, I just didn't watch. It's like of all the years to not watch, this was the one. Like literally, I've watched for 15 years in a row. And for some reason, I was like, I'm tired. Did a wedding in Nashville. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. To my shame, I missed maybe the greatest Oscars of all time. But thinking about what's just been infamously now called the slap, um, there are so many takes, too many takes. Sometimes as Christians, we've just got too many takes. I don't care really what your take is. Um, I've got some thoughts, but I'm not going to share them because why? But I do think I'll start with just this simple question that I do think that moment, if you don't know what I'm talking about, the moment where Chris Rock told a joke, knowingly or unknowingly, about Will Smith's, Will Smith's wife, Jada Pinkett Smith, who has uh, alopecia, has that condition. I don't know if he knows that or not. Made the joke about her baldness. Will Smith storms the stage. Surely we all know this. I'm just telling it for maybe the few of us who don't. And just really, just an all-time open-hand slap. Just real impressive. Um, right or wrong, we could debate it. Here's my question. In that moment, for both Chris Rock and for Will Smith, and for us, this is the question that I want to kind of lean into tonight. Do we have a regard for life and a reverence for each other's bodies and stories? Do we have a deep regard for life? Do we have a deep reverence for each other's bodies and stories? What I want to do is this, these two commandments, we're kind of, if you've been with us, you know we're doing some version of this theme. I want to do three things tonight. I want to talk about what do, what do they show us about who God is? Two, what do they show us about who we are? And then thirdly, what do they show us about what Jesus's redeeming work is? Who God is, who we are, what the redeeming work of Jesus is to us. So I'll start first with what does it show us about God? And it's pretty simple, but I think we need to wrestle with it. It shows us this, that God is both the author and sustainer and defender of life. He created us in love and he cares deeply about what happens to our bodies and what we do with our bodies. Another way to say it is, God's heart is grieved and his righteous anger stirred when life is disregarded or threatened or taken or misused or abused. Uh, If you were with us in Bible study on Tuesday, you know, we started the passion of Jesus. We looked at one of the events of his passion, which is Jesus cleansing the temple And it's fascinating because sometimes people will misuse Jesus and his righteous anger, what he does in that, which is still incredibly nonviolent and patient, but still he shows forth his righteous anger at what the situation is. If you know the situation, the money changers are taking advantage of the poor 
of the sincere, of those, especially Gentiles who are coming to the temple to worship, and the, the money changers are just making money. They're taking advantage. They're abusing. They're misusing. And Jesus, you know, the story, he patiently threads the cords into a whip, and then he, drive, he turns the tables over, and he drives the money changers away. Why? Because his righteous anger is stirred. Because they were dishonoring the life and stories like, like, really? Like they were taking money away from them, which affected their livelihood. It affected their bodies. It affected their food. It affected their possessions. Let me try it like this. Um, imagine for a second, it's my birthday, and you're like, I really want to make Sammy, a, <laughs> just indulge me here, I really want to make Sammy this beautiful cake for his birthday, which would be weird. Let's just go with me, okay? I mean, it would be nice, but I'm not a big cake guy. Just go with me. So you spend, like, a day making this beautiful cake, and you text me, can I bring it over? And I'm like, yes, this is a good time for my family, and you come to the door. I open the door, and I invite you into our house, and I'm like, let's try this cake together. And I cut us both a slice. We're in my kitchen. I, like, take a bite. And then I spit it out. And as I'm doing it, I'm just staring you angrily in the face. And I take my fist and I just like smash the cake. And then if that's not worse, I lock eyes still. And I just smash it all over my counter. Making full eye contact while I'm doing it angrily. And I just pick it up, never breaking eye contact. Just never breaking. And just dump it in the trash. And I say, get, go. How would you feel? (laughs) How would you feel in that moment? (laughs) I would never, I would never do that to you. I would never do that to you. I would never. How would you feel though? Um, Let me do it like this. How do you think God feels? Let me just do two names. Here's the first name. George Floyd. A beautiful creation of God. A man who, if you, you, know, if you don't know his story, was allegedly used a counterfeit $20 bill. Uh, the cops rained down. Uh, Derek Chauvin, however you say his name, knelt on his neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds while he screamed, I can't breathe. How do you think God felt when his creation, someone who was wonderfully and fearfully made, when that happened? Two, this might be less familiar to you, a woman named Rachel Denhollander. If you know her name, you know she was, as a 15-year-old U.S. gymnast, uh, multiple times, over and over, sexually abused by her trainer, Dr. Larry Nasser. She literally, one of the most powerful things I've seen was when she goes to his sentencing and she gives what is just an incredible speech. And in that speech, she says this, how much is a little girl how much is a little girl worth 
These victims are worth everything. I plead with you to impose the maximum sentence under the plea agreement because everything is what these survivors are worth. How do you think God feels about you? Every single human being made in his image for his glory that he loves. And we so casually take for granted, misuse, abuse. How do you think it makes him feel? And this is the second thing I want you to see is we're leaning into what does it show us about ourselves? And it's hard. Because the question for us is, do we have and show a deep regard for life? The life of our neighbors, their stories. And I'm afraid if we're being honest, we don't. It doesn't always mean we're violent. It doesn't always mean we're aggressive. Sometimes it's just us being passive. Sometimes it's just us not caring and being indifferent. And this is where Jesus and the Sermon on the Mount is so important because I think these, you know, when we look at these commandments, my guess is, I could be wrong, but my guess is none of you have murdered someone. If you have, <laughs> I can say, please, let's talk. But we need, it needs to be known. This is your moment. It's time to confess. Um, I'm assuming most of you are not married except for me and Caroline. So technically, most of you have not committed adultery in that sense. But that's where Jesus, what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount, you know this, or if you don't know this, what Jesus is doing, he's not saying, all right, this was wrong, let me tell you what's right. Jesus, as our creator, with the Father and the Spirit, he's saying, let me, let me elaborate what we meant, what, what is meant by these commandments. And he says, if you've cursed your brother or sister, you've broken the sixth commandment. If you have had an outburst of anger, and just said whatever your go-to word is when you get mad. I don't know what yours is. I know what my family's are. And I'm not going to say that here. If you've ever done something cruel, you've broken this commandment. And the seventh, if you've ever in your thought life lusted, you've broken this commandment. This is another way to say it. If it's true that God deeply cares about life then it's true that both anger and lust are true killers of life. They rob us and they rob others of what life is meant to be, a life of flourishing, a life of goodness, a life of fullness. They rob us of that. And this means, and this is the harder truth for us, and we talked about this a little bit at Bible study Tuesday night, this means, I've always loved this line, that we're always in all of our relationships only ever doing one of two things. We're only either doing ministry, I don't mean capital M ministry, I mean just trying to love and serve each other, or we're doing manipulation, where I'm using you for something. Maybe it's fun, maybe it's my perception of your coolness, that it does something for me. Uh, maybe it's that I want something sexually from you. We're using each other all of the time and this is another way to say it. This is the way I want to lean into it. This means there are only two ways to live. There's a way in living that is ministry, that is serving, that is loving, that is saying essentially my life for yours. I'm going to lay down my life for you because you matter. I see you. You're made in God's image. You're worthy. 
And I want to do what I can do to lay down my life that yours might flourish. Or we're doing your life for mine. I don't care about you. I care about me. Whatever you can, whatever role you can play. I was listening to a podcast and they put it like this. You've probably, maybe you've heard this term, it was new to me. Um, the idea of main character syndrome. Where we can walk around like I'm the main character and you all are supporting characters. Right? It's like that. Was it an Apple commercial where that dude comes into focus for a second and then goes out of focus because he's not the main character? Those are the two ways to live. My life for yours or your life for mine. Again, two names, two more stories. Number one, Anna Delvey or Anna Sorokin. If you've watched Inventing Anna, you know what I'm talking about. If you've not, it's a crazy story of this. It's still, <laughs> there's still mystery here. I think initially from Russia, originally from Russia, it gets to America, pretty quickly learns. All I've really got to do is surround myself with really, really rich, wealthy, successful people and Instagram about it. And I'm going to climb the social ladder, the social ladder. And I'm actually going to make a lot of money because I'm going to take a lot of money. So if you've not watched this, I mean, it's crazy what she does. I mean, she basically goes to New York and just hustles, 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 and just Instagrams all of it, gets this reputation, steals a lot of money. And it's a beautiful, not beautiful, it's a painful example. It's not beautiful at all. It's a painful example of your life or mine. What can you give me to make me feel better about me? And then two, Brian Stevenson. Uh, If you saw Just Mercy, you know that Brian Stevenson's a real lawyer um, who decides he wants to give his life as a lawyer, not for gain, not for money, but he really wants to work on getting... Men, especially black men who were in the criminal system unjustly, who were just falsely accused, have ridiculous sentences with zero evidence. And so if you saw that movie at all, if you read that book, Just Mercy, I think still one of the most powerful things I've ever seen in TV is that scene where he goes to meet with Walter for the first time in the little jail in nowhere, Alabama. And the white racist guard makes him strip down. In a normal, you know, far beyond a normal strip search. If you saw the movie, you know the scene. He, he doesn't just check his pockets, make him take off his belt and shoes. He makes him strip entirely naked. And Brian Stevenson does it. And you can see the anger and the shame on his face, because you, can you imagine? But he does it. Because his goal is to get Walter justice. My life for yours. And that's the last thing I want you to see. What does it show us about the redeeming work of Jesus? We're getting into it. Think about a couple scenes in Jesus' life. Think toward anger. Think about the scene when uh, Judas betrays Jesus and Peter and his bravado and false toxic masculinity takes his sword out, just chops off the guard's ear. And I think Peter's thinking Jesus is about to William Wallace this thing and be like, let's go. And instead Jesus says, no, Peter. And he picks up the guard's ear and he literally restores it. And basically says to Peter, anger is not the way. Not in my kingdom. Love is. It doesn't mean love isn't courageous. It doesn't mean love isn't strong. 
but it means it's nonviolent. Second scene, Jesus, you know the story in Luke 7, he's at Simon, one of the Pharisees' house, houses for dinner. As Simon is full of himself, pompous, proud, religious, leader type. And that strange scene happens where what's called in Luke's narrative, the sinful woman who's got this reputation, no doubt, for being lustful, for being sexual, for making mistakes, for whatever. And here she is at Jesus' feet, and she takes what was an incredible, incredibly expensive jar of perfume, and she breaks it open, and she begins anointing Jesus' feet. This woman who maybe, probably, carried the shame of what had been done to her, carried the shame of some of her own choices, and here she is at Jesus' feet, and Simon says, dude, what are you doing? Like, don't you know her reputation? And do you remember what Jesus says? He says, Simon, you don't love me. Do you know why she loves me? She loves much because she's been forgiven much. You can hear Jesus saying, do you think her lust is too much for me? Do you think what's happened to her is too much for me? It's not. I welcome her. And she knows me and she knows my love. And you don't. And then it's Jesus. And he's making his way to the cross. And we gloss over this. Do you remember the scene where Jesus is literally stripped of all of his clothes? We really brush past this. You understand that the guards were, at least at some level, taking out their lust of naked Jesus. As he's making his way, carrying his cross. And then as he continues to carry his cross and he is bruised and bloodied and his bones are already at some levels broken and then his body is thrust upon this cross and between these wooden beams, it's literally nailed in a way where he's going to just die a slow death. His body was treated with such violence. There's a... a, a, um, an African-American female scholar who said when she realized that Jesus was lynched, that's when she said, I can have faith in him. Because do you think Jesus understands something of what Rachel Den Hollander went through? He does. Do you think Jesus understands something of what George Floyd went through? He does. And that's why the Hebrew says he is worthy of being our high priest who can sympathize with us in our stories of anger and lust, especially those that have been done to us. But he still has a word for those that we have done and thought word and deed. And when we hear Jesus, as he cries out on the cross, it is finished. You can almost hear him say, my life for yours. My life for yours. That's how much I love you. That's how much I see you. That's how much I want you to be brought into the family of God. I'll close with this. There's a story from one of my favorite writers, Anne Lamott. 
And it goes like this. There's an eight-year-old boy who had a younger sister who's dying of leukemia. And he's told by the doctor and his parents that he might uh, be, she had a rare kind of blood type, and he might be the lone candidate to do the blood transfusion to save his sister's life. So the parents ask him, and the doctor asks him, can we take your blood just to see? And he says, yes. And so they take his blood. Sure enough, it's a match. And then the parents realize the weight of, you know, he's eight. We want to make sure it's his choice. And so they sleep on it overnight and, and say, would you consider this? So he wakes up the next day and he goes to his parents and he says, I, I'm, I'm willing to do it. Like, I'm willing to give my sister my blood. And as they hook him up, the parents and the doctor realize as the boy is being hooked up and his blood is starting to flow, he says this, how soon until I start to die? And the parents and the doctor realize, oh, no, no, like you're not, you're not going to, you're not going to die. It's just going to be a blood transfusion. You're going to be fine. But thinking about the heart of that little boy, willing to give his life. For his younger sister. And it's just a glimpse into the heart of Jesus, who did give his life, his blood, for you and for me. I don't know, as you've been listening, if you've been listening, that's a bold assumption. <laughs> if you've been listening, I don't know how anger and lust land on you. I don't. My guess is you've got stories of both. Both things that have been done to you that are not right and have really shaped your story and things that you've at least thought, maybe done, said. And I want you to hear the words from the author of Hebrews who says this about Jesus. Jesus, Hebrews 12, Jesus who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I love the way that one pastor says it. What was that joy? What was that joy? That joy was you, and that joy was me. And whatever shame we feel around anger or lust, it is no match for the joy of Jesus redeeming you. His life for yours. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, would you meet us in that way? Would you meet us in our shame? Would you remind us not just of the forgiveness that you have won for us, but would you remind us of the joy over us that you feel in the face of our shame, in the face of our sinfulness, and would you change us? Lord, no amount of, I'm going to try harder this week, no amount of, I've really got to get my life together, is going to change us. It is purely your love and grace and joy over us. And what you've done for us, your life for ours. And would you lead us, as we know your life for us, would you lead us in a way where we are the ones who lay down our lives for one another? For our roommates, for our friends, for our neighbors, for those who need our love, would you help us? We pray these things for Christ in your name. Amen. Please stand and sing our last song with us.